Today's podcast of The Morning Show with Greg Berg is devoted to the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. It features a conversation I recorded 10 years ago for the 40th anniversary of Woodstock. And the conversation is with Mike Evans, one of the co-editors of what many regard as the definitive book about Woodstock. It's titled Woodstock, Three Days That Rocked the World, published by Sterling. The book was created in collaboration with the museum at Bethel Woods, New York, very close to the site where Woodstock unfolded half a century ago. Here is that interview. Let's find out just a little bit more about who you were and what you were doing at the time of Woodstock 40 years ago. I mean, in a sense, was this the kind of event which you yourself would have been part of and would have very powerfully spoken to you? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I was playing on the uh, on the UK scene. Uh, although the band I was in, we did tour the States about a couple of a month or so later after Woodstock. But um, at the time of Woodstock, precisely, we were gigging around England and, in fact, played at the Isle of Wight Festival two weeks after Woodstock, which was the one with the day with Bob Dylan, which was the kind of biggest event of its kind in England, which is about about a quarter of a million people, so that's about half the size of Woodstock. But it was still a big, big event, and it was it was that, that it was that whole sort of scene where these festivals uh, became the sort of cultural cultural markers, if you like. Uh, of course, Woodstock, just by what you said, we know was not an unprecedented event. I mean, these kind of open air music festivals had had happened quite a lot, but of course, there was something about Woodstock which made it, in a sense transcendent over all of the others. Yes, there was. It was partly by default. Because the organizers expected about 100,000, 150,000, and half a million turned up, and another quarter of a million never actually got there because of the traffic jams, the the, the situation rapidly deteriorated. There wasn't enough food to go around. There wasn't enough sanitation. People couldn't get in and out with supplies. The medical supplies broke down. And the thing was near... A, a human disaster, and it was only because of the kind of self-help and, the, if you like, the hippie ethos almost of uh, uh, peace and love and so on. There was no trouble, there was no aggravation, and they actually managed to survive in these very, very extreme conditions with with the rainstorms and the mud and so on. And so Woodstock became a marker for something about that counterculture, as it was called. It was much bigger than just uh, a few hundred thousand kids listening to some music. It was that as well, but but it became a marker for, um, if you like, the the, the 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 epitome of that hippie philosophy. Hmm. Let's talk a moment about the creation of this particular uh, work, this this wonderful book, Woodstock: Three Days That Rock the World, uh, with you and Paul Kingsbury. First of all, whose idea was it, and uh, and take us through the process of of how this book took shape. Well, myself and the um, the English uh, publisher or packager, I should say, the person who actually put the thing together, and then we got it published in the States by Sterling. But um, that company in England and myself, we got our heads together and we thought, well, 40 years, it, Woodstock deserves a kind of definitive commemoration. There have been books about it before. There have been various uh, people who are aware of it, of course, in the movie and the records. But um, they tended to, to focus mainly on the music, uh, or if not, on the, on the kind of sex and drugs and mud. <laughs> but we, we felt that there was there was call for a kind of definitive account that went 
as you say, through the whole background of it, the organization, the cultural background, the cultural upheaval that was happening in the States, and, and the aftermath, how, it, how it's influenced th things since. And, and in the middle of all that, a very definitive account of day by day and even hour by hour, how the, how the, festival, how the festival transpired. So I suppose one of the first things you had to do was seek out uh, all kinds of different people who either attended or helped organize Woodstock or performed there. I mean, I'm very impressed by the uh, uh, array of, of, of persons that, that, uh, whose, whose accounts and reminiscences are, are in this book. How did you go about finding them or figuring out who to talk to to, to bring Woodstock alive again? I drew up a kind of wish list of who, 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 who we'd like to talk to uh, and obviously made inquiries as some of them have passed on by now, of course, and um, came up with a list of people we'd like to talk to. And that, as you say, that went through the organizers, the musicians and singers and anybody who, who was there on the ground, just fans. You know, there, there are thousands of people out there who attended who, who were anonymous members of the public, you know, so we tried to track all that down. Uh, we had a great help in the latter respect with the um, the Museum of Bethel Woods that just opened of June of last year, which commemorates the Woodstock Festival because they they'd interviewed a lot of people already in for their archive people who were were who were fans, uh, many of them local residents to that area. So we had ac access to that archive, and then our, ourselves we went out and sought track down musicians and the organisers and so on. Talked to Michael Langley guy whose brainchild it was, and all sorts of people. And then the other great resource, of course, was newspaper archives. We, we, As you'll see, there are a lot of cuttings from the New York Times and Rolling Stone and various magazines and newspapers that recorded the event, and they themselves, of course, interviewed people on the ground at the time. So the whole thing was a great sort of scrapbook of various sources, a great scrapbook of the thing to give this kind of impression of, of, of the whole thing. I want to talk for a moment about the film Woodstock. And uh, obviously, uh, you and your co-editor uh, regard this as uh, a very important document. Uh, you, you choose Martin Scorsese uh, to write the foreword for your book. And uh, he is someone who worked on the film Woodstock. Um, talk for a moment about the importance of that, in uh, not only f for the sort of the world at large, uh, to to preserve Woodstock and, and what happened there, but t to what extent that that film was perhaps a valuable tool for you uh, in putting this book together? It was an in, invaluable tool because um, one was able to piece together the bits of information that are, are all a bit vague after forty years. Who went home before who? Whether it was nighttime, whether it's in daytime. Sometimes you weren't sure if somebody went on in the daytime or in the evening, and you could piece all this together with clues from the from the film. Um, the running order, the set lists, all this had to be pieced together, not just with the existing film, but there are lots of uh, DVDs of outtakes, uh, director's outtakes and that kind of stuff. They've just re-released the film in a much longer version with, with material that wasn't in the, first, uh, in the first release. And so access to all this stuff really was invaluable to, to put together as near as definitive a picture that we could. And, of course, Scorsese was, um, was one of the two main editors on the, on, the, on the film at the time. It was directed by Michael Wadley. And it, was, and it was that movie that, A, sort of set the template for music movies to come, 
Scorsese, who did, um, you know, most recently a Rolling Stones movie, and he did uh, The Last Waltz, and he did some Bob Dylan documentary. But um, also, um, it was important uh, that it, it broadcast to the world the phenomenon of Woodstock, because before that, it was just word of mouth when it happened. We heard about it in the UK, but didn't really, weren't that aware of, of how big an event it was. When the movie came out about six, nine months later, that told the world, showed the world uh, the incredible um, events. You, Scorsese himself writes in the foreword, what the movie did and continues to do is to distill the Woodstock experience and, more important, keep it vibrant and alive. I One, think so. One thing he says, and of course, I, I can't really ask you to speak for Martin Scorsese, but I wonder if you have any idea of what he means at one point in his foreword when he says, Woodstock, the movie, was on a lot of levels a huge, closely run gamble. I really love the way he puts that because, I mean, I think most of the time when we think of, of a project as being a gamble, we think of it as being completely reckless and spontaneous and, and completely driven by chance. And he calls this a closely run gamble. I think that's uh, intriguing words he uses there. Well, I think what he meant was the fact that they, Michael Wadley and put his team together, they still hadn't sold the movie to anybody. They didn't have a distributor. They didn't have a company to finance it. And they went down, they went up there to Woodstock with 20 cameras and uh, they hired an editing suite back in New York to put this thing together. And, uh, and they, they didn't sign over the rights to the movie to Warner Brothers till uh, a point during the actual festival, by which time they'd, they'd filmed half of it. And so that was, that was, that was uh, taking a gamble for a start. And, of course, they were taking a gamble with the conditions because they just had 20 cameras running, only one of which had sound, so they had, the rest had to be synced to that later. Uh, the, 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 the chaotic weather, which we, 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 they, they famously captured, the storms and the, the mud and the rain... I mean, the, the, the movie makers were, were as much at risk uh, to, to, to those conditions as were the, the, the audience or the, uh, or the musicians. So, so they, they, were, they were rather kind of physical gamble whether they could actually make the film happen. And they ran, ran a financial gamble that they'd ever, uh, ever, ever see it uh, produced. Hmm. We're speaking with Mike Evans, one of two editors of a marvelous book about Woodstock called Woodstock Three Days that rocked the world. Uh, one of the things that uh, is intriguing about how this festival took shape was that at the heart of it was uh, a, a small group of, of organizers and, uh, and one financial backer in particular who uh, called their four-man partnership Woodstock Ventures. And that term just sort of it seems, uh, on the face of it at least, kind of at odds with what we think of as the counterculture and, and, and so on. And when we see uh, uh, and, and learn a little more about uh, some of these, a couple of these guys who were behind it, and particularly John Roberts, who uh, wrote the check for so much of, of Woodstock, uh, that makes this all the more intriguing, who was in fact behind it. Talk a moment about that. Well, the um, the financial side, uh, Michael Lang, who's the inspiration for the whole thing, who's the uh, whose idea it was, um, went and sought out some uh, financial backing. And his idea at the time wasn't to have this huge one-off festival. The idea was to set up a recording studio in Woodstock itself, uh, because it had become quite a music centre. 
And to finance that, he, he, he thought, well, I've, I've already organized a successful festival in Miami a, a, a year or so earlier. He thought, I'll put on a big festival and raise money for the studio. So he sold the idea to, um, to uh, John Roberts on the basis that they, they'd used the money to set up a recording studio, and that was, that was Woodstock Ventures. Of course, the way the thing transpired, um, after the, before the first day had ended, the, 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 the chaotic numbers that arrived meant that the only thing they could do to keep it physically safe was to let everybody in for free. So from the first day in, they were losing money. So they never, they never got the recording studio, and they only recouped their money a year or two, three years later after the movie receipts and the record receipts started rolling in. But at the time, they, they lost a couple of million dollars uh, over those three days. And so there was no, so the, the recording studio in Woodstock was forgotten about. But that was Woodstock Ventures. I'm so intrigued by the story of John Roberts. He was the really the primary financial backer of Woodstock. And uh, uh, his fortune was uh, came from the fact that he was uh, one of the heirs to the family who, uh, whose company essentially created Polydent. That's right. That famous uh, denture <laughs> adhesive. I mean, just the thought that money from Polydent was behind Woodstock is right. uh, boggles the imagination. Yeah. And apparently his father, when he, he, when he um, got into the, uh, into the project, he took his father, he drove his father up to Woodstock to show them, or to Bethel rather, where the actual festival was eventually um, taking place. He, he drove them to the site when they were building this thing, and, uh, and his father said, he said, well, listen, I've, I've invested my money. <laughs> yeah. And his father, and his father could you just see this field? <laughs> I knew you'd do something like this as soon as you got your hand on that bread, you know? Mm. <laughs> Wonderful Let, story. Let's talk for a moment about how tricky it was for this new music festival to indeed find a home and how, in fact, the, 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 the term Woodstock or the name Woodstock is actually something of a misnomer in terms of where this festival eventually ended up happening. Uh, tell us about the search for a home, a, a site for this music festival to occur. Well, as I say, Michael Lang's original idea was, was to have it in Woodstock, which is a, already a music and, and, and an art centre. It had been a kind of uh, art centre since, um, since the early 20th century. I mean, a, a, a relatively small and lovely little community, and That's I know right, Bob yeah. Dylan and others already lived there and they were making music there. there. Yeah, and Dylan lived in an old arts and crafts house, which dated from the early 1900s. And it was a very gentle place, and people came and went, and there was a strong artistic community there. So Lang's idea was to have this music festival, which was also an arts festival, so there'd be local painters and, you know, literary events and so on. It was going to be much more of a cultural sort of broad cultural festival, hence it was called the, the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair. And... When the local authorities got wind of the fact that this music and arts fair was going to involve maybe a few uh, a few thousand hippies arriving, <laughs> they they kind of got cold, cold feet and uh, and vetoed it out of town. So so the the, the organisers' next uh, plan was to have it in a place called Wallkill, about twenty miles away, and the same thing happened there. They they got it set up. They had a site pick. They negotiated with the owners of the site, and then again the local authorities um, got wind of it. And they were packed off on their way again, and they eventually found found the site in Bethel, which was on the on the farmland of uh, a guy called Max Yasker, 
the, the dairy farmer, and he, he, they, he, they offered him $50,000 for the land, and, and, and he took it with both hands for the use of the land. Um, interestingly, the, uh, the posters, or, 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 and a lot of the initial uh, publicity had already been done with, with, with the thing called Woodstock Music and Arts Fair, so that stuck. That stuck, and they just had to stick a new address on the bottom. Hmm. <laughs> but uh, the name came by default, really. This this figure of of the farmer Max Yasker is really uh, uh, inspiring, because uh, this this gentleman, I mean, uh, much older than uh, anyone we would immediately think of as being uh, associated with Woodstock, uh, ended up coming under fire from uh, his neighbors and certain uh, people in the community who uh, had grave misgivings ab- about all of this. Tell us uh, what he ended up sort of doing and ultimately representing in all of this. Well, Max was amazing because, he, as you say, he was a, he was a straightforward, no-nonsense dairy farmer and certainly not of the generation or even of the, of the philosophy of the, uh, the counterculture by any means. Um, however, he agreed to have this festival, and he, you know, he thought the guys that organize, were organising seemed amiable, good kids, as he put it. And when the when the the, the the crowds of hippies started filtering in over the over the pre, few days previous to the festival, he thought they were good kids, and there was no trouble. And he, he, he warmed to them immediately, still expecting about fifty thousand, a hundred thousand people on his land. And of course, the thing grew bigger and bigger, and as it did, his his neighbours started protesting and telling, even telling the, the, the local community to boycott his, his milk supplies because he was, uh, he was bringing all this disrepute on the, uh, on the community. And, of course, when they did that, old Max dug his heels in even more, you know, and he said, these kids are okay and I'm not having you blackmail me and so on. And he actually went out and spoke to the, spoke to the kids from the stage, uh, giving this rousing speech of support, and he, he became a sort of counterculture hero overnight. And incidentally, he was the, it's the only time that when he died a couple of years later, sadly, it's the only time a dairy farmer has had a, a full-page obituary in Rolling Stone magazine. Hmm. One of the things I especially appreciate about your book is that, I mean, I could, I could imagine somebody putting together a book about Woodstock and spending all of their time talking about... Um, I mean, the musicians and the drug use and the, you know, everything that sort of made the headlines. I so appreciate the fact that, that you seem uh, as fascinated as I ultimately uh, became with the backstage preparations, all that yeah. went on behind the scenes uh, before Woodstock itself ever even began. Uh, I wonder... Uh, First of all, before we even talk about those specifics, if if that was ever even discussed, that that this book should include that, or just from the beginning, was it just sort of a given that, of course, we're going to talk about that? I mean, I'm so glad that you do, but uh, I think a lot of other people writing a book about Woodstock might might not have paid attention to some of the things to which you pay very close attention. Yeah, when 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 I mapped it out to begin with, I I, I sort of put forward a draft flat plan, as we call it. And, and, and all those things were in there. I said, well, we've got to talk about the preparation in detail because that's never discussed and never, you know, it, it, it's an insight into how these things occur. And um, so things like that, we did plan right from the word go, from the very first draft of a, of a, of a plan for the book. Th- those elements were, were, were very much uh, 
very much identified, yeah. I was intrigued that there is so much photographic evidence of just the construction of the site and, 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 and this and that. I mean, especially given the fact that nobody going into this had any idea of ultimately how incredible it how incredibly important this this event was going to become. I mean, so often these things that surprise us with their importance aren't documented in the moment all that well, but but Woodstock evidently was. Well, that's right. I, I think the, the interesting thing about Woodstock is it was before the days of you know, the Internet or mobile phones, cell phones, as you call them, uh, or uh, Google, Twitter, any of those things. It was before all that, but the, 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 but the word of mouth... Uh, the word of mouth buzz of, of, of publicity that it had amongst the sort of young community, right across, right gradually, right across the country, obviously attracted uh, equally media folk all, all sympathetic to that generation. I mean, there, there were lots of young photographers hanging around, lots of, and of course the movie makers. But so, so by the time this event took place, there were there were people, there were people up there shooting pictures, you know, recording the thing. Um, while it was being while it was being created, uh, because of this buzz of anticipation that this was going to be this was going to be the big one, even though they never thought it'd be quite as big as it was. Hmm. You spend, uh, I think, a, a surprising amount of time talking about someone named Bill Hanley, yes, and the very important contribution he made, and some of the really crucially important decisions made by uh, Bill Hanley, the sound engineer for Woodstock. Talk a moment about the importance of this. Well, Hanley was important because he he pioneered um, the way from then on that these big events would be um, dealt with in terms of the in terms of the sound. Uh, the, 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 previous to that, big events were very difficult to uh, to get the sound across, if you like. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd have a big political convention or you'd have a, uh, you know, a big sort of indoor event that was fairly easy but outdoor events were notoriously difficult to um, get get the sound so as everybody in a in a huge open arena could hear it and uh, and and woodstock if you like was hanley's ultimate challenge and and, and he, he even created these big speaker bins which lay, which from there on in were called the um the woodstock bins and uh, and they became a template for people putting on these these large scale events and uh, and hanley of course became the most famous sound engineer in the business hmm. uh and he uh did all sorts of events uh things from the i think the pope's visit to to, to the state to uh in a presidential inauguration and various things that were huge open-air events which uh, had never been dealt with in quite this sophisticated way before so even though woodstock were quite chaotic technically it was many aspects of it were state-of-the-art one of the things that he apparently designed, the, and it's such a great idea, and I suspect uh, has been duplicated in many other places and situations, was a, a, kind of a, a design aspect which which related to, to, to crowd control and of doing something which would help, in a sense, discourage people from pressing too close uh, to the edge of the stage uh, where the performers were, were, were singing and playing. Um, just talk a moment about this. That's right. He, he, he designed it in such a way that the speakers went round in a kind of oval semicircle, and, and, and the, um, there, there was a there was a, a, a baffle. There, there, there was a, a space between the, the, the crowd and the stage, which allowed for the sound to get round much better. But also, it, as you say, it, 
it discouraged the um, it discouraged the kids from actually pressing right against the front of the stage, which which could also be could often be a cause of some problems in 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 these big gatherings. Sure, you also tell us that the stage was so high that if you pressed all the way up to the stage. You couldn't, you couldn't see anything see. anymore. So well, just, well, that's right. yes. just to preserve your sight lines, you would, in a sense, keep kind of what would amount to a respectful distance. Which you kept back. That's right. To even to see anything. That's right. And the sound is the same. The sound. If you, if you, the photographers have told me this, they were allowed to scurry around right, 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 right much nearer the stage, and and they said that at some points, even though it's incredibly loud, the music you couldn't you couldn't hear it properly once you were that close because the sound was going over your head. Right. You also tell us the really intriguing idea that somebody had, and I think if I understand correctly, this idea didn't really uh, work out the way they hoped, but it was something they had designed and built, which theoretically at least was going to allow one band to finish and sort of slide right off and another to slide right into their place on the stage. Uh, Can you talk a moment about this idea and what ultimately kind of went wrong with it? Right, yeah, they had a revolving, well, basically a revolving stage. It was a re- revolving kind of podium. That, that, that they, they they have them in in uh, theatres quite a lot. Uh, I, you know, they're kind of a small version of which is a convention in the, in the theatre, where you can change scenes by shifting the scenery around on a, on a revolving thing. Uh, and they had the idea that if they put a band on the front there playing, the other band was setting up, then they turn this thing around so that this next band was ready to start playing as soon as the other had finished rather than 20 minutes setting up between each band of course the <laughs> when they first cranked the thing up to go the wheels fell off <laughs> and so the thing stayed the thing stayed in its original position at a slightly slightly wonky an- angle for the rest of the festival <laughs> and of course that would in, not in every respect but in a couple of respects that's almost an apt metaphor for certain uh Certain things that didn't go uh, quite as 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 intended. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I mean, the whole thing was fraught with fraught with delays and chaotic interruptions, and bands not getting there on time, and bands not being able to get there at all, and you know, the whole thing running so late that when Jimi Hendrix did the final the final set of the whole festival scheduled for Sunday evening, it was it, it was it was. Monday afternoon or Monday lunchtime, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciated the fact that uh, for all the incredible musicians who were part of Woodstock, there were some important musicians who weren't. And uh, you, you devote a couple of pages uh, to this topic uh, with the headline of Refuseniks. <laughs> and uh, just talk a moment about uh, a, a couple of no-shows who uh, would have otherwise made Woodstock uh, even more spectacular. Um, well, one of the big no-shows was that Led Zeppelin, of course, who were just coming up to being uh, not not quite as famous as they eventually were, but but they were getting pretty big in in, in the U.S. And, and their manager Peter Grant turned them down because he he had ambitions for them that they soon achieved. And he said, oh, if they went on Woodstock, they'd just be one of a whole bunch of bands, which of course they would, you know. So he he turned them down just on on the basis that they weren't they, they wouldn't be top of the bill. Um, Bob Dylan famously turned it down. The, the, the people at Woodstock, of course, the, the crowd, always thought that Dylan was going to turn up. There was a rumor going around that Dylan was going to turn up. He only lived, he only lived up the road in Woodstock itself, and of course, he had no intention of turning up because he'd he'd signed to do the Isle of Wight festival in England uh, for 
for fifty fifty thousand dollars, and uh, the most they were paying at Woodstock was about thirty thousand. <laughs> and he'd signed the day Woodstock opened. He was already boarding the Queen Elizabeth II to sail to England. Tell us a bit about the logistics of the tickets, which, uh, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself because, uh, of course, ultimately a whole lot of people just sort of stampede into Woodstock and they give up even trying to sell tickets or make any distinctions between paying and non-paying customers. But at the start of it, people bought tickets to attend Woodstock, right? Oh, yeah, you could buy tickets all over the country. There they, they, they 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 was a whole ticket um, mechanism, and you could buy a ticket for one day, two day, or three days, whatever. And uh, and when the first people with tickets started turning up, uh, they, they found to their amazement that there were already people on the site parked, you know, camped, camped out in tents and so on, who, who, who didn't have tickets because, of course, they, they still hadn't built any fences or any ticket booths. So they hastily started building the fences and ticket booths uh, like a day before the festival, which, of course, was too late because people had already arrived and then and people were still arriving by, by, by the 100,000. And, uh, and they eventually realized that, that, that if, and, uh, to avoid having a real serious problem on their hands with, with, with angry people saying we paid and they didn't and trying to struggle through getting the tickets off these people and charging other people who didn't have a ticket, they just gave up the organizers and said, okay, it's a free festival. And that was basically in the middle of the first afternoon. Hmm. It appears that one of the biggest oversights by the organizers of this was that they really did not stop to consider the matter of traffic and how in the world people were going to get there. In fact, one of my very favorite photographs in this amazing book is the photograph on page 67 which uh, shows just one little segment of this gigantic traffic jam, uh, which eventually made it all but impossible for anybody to get to this festival. Talk for a moment about just what a serious problem this ultimately became and the way in which it affected the festival itself. Well, that's right, because that that traffic jam on that photograph was just one of many, because every road leading to the site from north, south, east, and west was, was like that. And um, it got to the point where traffic, as you say, couldn't get in and couldn't get out. So, so the people who were there, maybe only intended to be there for a day or two days, were effectively trapped until the whole thing was over. And likewise, there was a quarter of a million people that never actually got into the festival. Uh, on, on the, so so the, the, the holdup was incredible. And that was the main factor in this, uh, in, in, in the breakdown in, in, in the breakdown in. Um, services and so on, food supply and medicine and all that kind of stuff, because not only had they under-anticipated the numbers, but they couldn't, they couldn't supplement it with, with any extra. They couldn't bring in food very easily. They couldn't bring in medicine, and eventually all that had to be done by helicopter. Even the musicians were brought in by helicopter because um, they literally couldn't get in and out, and that, that changed the nature of the festival mm. in the sense that um, it, it did encourage this sort of self-help uh, hippie community spirit, which, which meant that uh, the, 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 the masses there were, were, were actually um, feeding themselves. Hmm. Which, and it was a kind of share-all thing. It was, it was, it was quite a social phenomenon. Hmm. So tell us a little bit about uh, the array of artists who performed at, at Woodstock. I mean, I, 
I, I'm I'm not a, a fan of this music nor a connoisseur, so uh, I only had the vaguest sense of exactly who played at Woodstock. I knew about a couple of the headliners like Janis Joplin and so on. But uh, as I read your book, uh, which takes us very specifically and carefully through everybody who performed at Woodstock, I was really f- frankly surprised at that it was as wide a range as it was. It was it, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was, it was a very wide range. I mean, when, when, I'd forgotten because I, 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 to be honest, before I started doing this book, I hadn't seen the, I probably hadn't watched the movie for 20 years. And, and coming back to it in this detail, I, I was amazed that, of course, they were playing, they were playing, and, and how, how, broad the, um, how broad the range of music was. I mean, on the one hand, you had sort of hard rock of the time or heavy rock, whatever you like to call it, and uh, the Grateful Dead and Mountain and uh, Jimi Hendrix. Then you had sort of folk rock like Crosby, Stills and Nash, Nash that was much lighter. Real folk music, people like uh, Arlo Guthrie and Joan Byers. You had blues bands, uh, Canned Heat, uh, the um, Paul Butterfield Band, Blood, Sweat and Tears that were kind of that funny amalgam of jazz and rock. You had Country Joe and the Fish, who were kind of political, political propaganda rock, if you like, singing against the Vietnam War. Uh, yeah, there was a whole bunch of different kind of stuff, which is wonderful, really. And yeah. um, of course, you had um, shouting blues with Janis Joplin and Keith Hart. He was an English kind of jazz rock outfit. I'm just looking down the list now. There was the Scottish Incredible String Band, who were kind of folksy English hippie kind of folk music, and uh, and of course. And of course, um, Ravi Shankar. That was in Indian classical music. So, so the range was was quite quite remarkable. Mm. And yet, it, it, the audience, it was no, it, it, it was a common factor for all that audience. They, the music scene was so broad then that the audience could accept all that stuff. One of the things that was really striking to me is how often the musicians that you talked to, who who performed at Woodstock. Uh, I, at least in contemporary reflections or maybe in reflections they made at the time, talked of how they didn't perform all that well. And, of course, that's not, not everybody. I mean, some people were absolutely on fire and uh, just set the place on its ear. But over and over again, we read of musicians uh, sort of looking back on the actual musical quality of what they did on that stage at Woodstock and and feel like they were far from... Uh, the, the, their best uh, f- for kind of a variety of, of, of reasons. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there were, there were kind of there was <clears throat> excuse me there, there were physical reasons that didn't help, like the rain and so on. Because obviously, if you got an electrical based band and you're playing in the open air, then uh, a rain deluge just doesn't help at all. You know, either you don't play or you play under very difficult conditions. Um, that was one factor which we, which didn't help at all. The, the fact that the thing ran later and later behind schedule meant that people were actually going on stage at two, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, five, six. Some of, some of the sets ran through to the dawn. You know, I mean, Jefferson Airplane went on at dawn, and of course these these guys were zonked out by then. Jan, Janis Joplin went on at midnight, and she was she was scheduled to go on at seven or eight o'clock at night. And of course she she sat backstage, swigging her Jack Daniels. Daniels, as she did, and so by the time she got uh, gone, she was 
blind drunk, you know, whereas whereas if she'd gone on at eight o'clock and then got drunk afterwards, that would have been that would have probably been better. And 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 she admitted that herself, you know. It just and uh, we we interviewed her manager at the time, and uh, he said she just uh, the, the timing just went completely against them, you know, in the sense that uh, they got drunk or they were tired or whatever. And it, so there were there were a lot of circumstances that um, that a lot of bands just didn't think they played their best and certainly didn't play their best. Others, as you say, had a, had a spark that just, you know, just uh, went over all that. Hmm. I was intrigued in reading about what Joan Baez did uh, very early Saturday morning. I mean, essentially one in the morning when she began performing. In every case with the musicians, you list the songs that they sang. Uh, in the case of Joan Baez, there are all these other songs which people reported her singing, but weren't officially part of her set and must have been sung at some other point or whatever and made me realize that you know when you're when you're trying to figure out who sang what when at something as complicated as Woodstock uh, gets to be a bit of a challenge it was a problem yeah with Joan Baez it was it was um, complicated by the fact that she actually um, there was a what was called a free stage uh, somewhere out in the in the audience area where where kind of just amateur musicians between the between the bands taking so long to change over, amateur musicians were getting up and just playing on this free stage, which is some way away from the main stage, and and and, and Joan Baez was wandering around up in in that part of the part of the audience, and and somebody said, "Hey, Joan, come and get a there was a few numbers." So of course she did, having no, you know, having no commercial instinct to kind of, oh, I'm only going to play my set, and that's all, all you, that's what I'm getting paid for. She got up and quite happily sang all these other songs that were part of her repertoire. And uh, that's so. That's why we've got this little uh, footnote of she apparently sang on this pre-stage this this other stuff. Mm. But um, to go back to your point, you're quite right that the the set lists even now there are people claiming that they're uh, that they're not complete. That um, now they've re-released the movie with some extra footage. There's we missed that that that, that number or that number. You know, and I'm beginning to think that it'll never be it will never be a hundred hundred percent definitive. You know. Mm. Among the most extraordinary moments uh, is a, a moment uh, on Friday evening uh, when, because of a downpour, one of the acts that has all this electrical equipment that they just don't want to plug in, that uh, then onto the stage uh, steps uh, an all-but-unknown folk singer named Melanie. Uh, describe to our listeners... What happened at this moment in Woodstock? Well, uh, the Incredible String Band, the Scottish folky band I described, they by this time were relying on a lot of electrical equipment, so they decided they couldn't go on because Ravi Shankar had come off stage in in a rainstorm, and um, they were due on next. So, so Melanie, who kind of volunteered to sing at some point, and Michael Lang had said, "Yeah, sure, yeah, sure," you know, she was kind of hanging around backstage, and they sort of said to her, "Right, you're on," <laughs> and they shoved this girl on who. Had done a few gigs around Greenwich Village, and and that was it. She's from Queens. She she'd done a few gigs around New York, and that was it. And suddenly she's facing these uh, this half a million people, and uh, she got into her first song, and then it, as if by magic, um, somebody um, some of the hippie one of the hippie communes had handed out little candles for people. So some some of the people in the audience were lighting these candles, and then everybody else followed suit with lighters and matches and so on. And she said this suddenly there was this 
sea of sparkling little points of light because you couldn't see the crowd. You know, there was no... Obviously, you had the stage lights on you and you couldn't see much out there. And suddenly there was this magical flickering of all these candles and lighters. And, and, and apparently that was, um, that was where that whole uh, tradition started of people lighting up lighters during uh, various open-air festivals, yeah. Hmm. And, of course, it goes from Melanie to Arlo Guthrie to Joan Baez and on and on as this uh, event unfolds. Uh, one of Joan Baez's observations is made by other musicians as well when they are flown in via helicopter and they look down at the site and they wonder, what is it that they are seeing beneath them? That's and right. it is this gigantic crowd. I mean, none of them are expecting to see this uh, throng of humanity uh, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the New York State countryside. That's right. Yeah, they, they all said that. The, 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 all the musicians I spoke to, they said that... that we, I said, when did you realize it was going to be as big an event as it was? And they said, well, historically, probably later, but, but at the time, we realized it was something phenomenal when we flew in and saw... Sort of this mass of humanity, which we, first of all, couldn't recognise as as such. It looked like a field, a field of some kind of, you know, some kind of growth, you know, some kind of. Hmm. Um, yeah, they, 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 and that was a common reaction to from them all. Yeah. How much did it rain at Woodstock? I mean, how often and for how long? Um, well, certainly the first big rainstorm was the one with Richie, force Richie Havens off stage on the on the, on, on the Sunday evening. Um, on on the second day, it rained off and on. I think in a kind of fairly uh, regular, but not not absolutely traumatic way. Uh, the, the, the 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 mud the mud started being created on the on the second day. On the third day, after Joe Cocker went on with the, with his band at uh, five o'clock or so in the evening, there was a, there was then a huge storm, and it was five hours before before another band went on. There was a five hour gap between Joe Cocker. And the next band, um, and that was the big one. But but even through the Saturday, there was enough rain around to create all the famous the famous mud. And then the sun would come out, of course, and the hippies went skinny dipping because they were covered in caked in dry mud. You know. <laughs> of course, there are all kinds of serious matters like getting these people fed and uh, giving them medical medical attention and this and that. Uh, actually, when you think about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people being together in one place. Uh, it's a wonder that more bad things didn't occur. Well, everybody says that. That everybody we spoke to, from from the musicians to the organisers to local local cops and local uh, medical people and so on who've been interviewed, they, they they all said that the lack of any aggravation or any crowd trouble or any violence was absolutely amazing, given the the numbers involved and the conditions. That it, it really was. If there was ever a kind of, uh, if there was ever an example of the peace and love ethos, whether it occurred before or whether it ever occurred again, if there was ever an example of that, this was it. That, that it, it really was a sort of uh, peaceful event, which was quite amazing. Absolutely. Uh, in its wake, of course, people tried to to make sense of 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 all that had occurred, and of course, with a whole lot of people on. Uh, on uh, on drugs of various kinds and so on, uh, the, the whole thing also had this uh, sort of joyous chaos about it. In fact, I'm reminded of something Martin Scorsese says in the foreword when he talked about how at Woodstock there was a lot of simultaneity. 
That is so many different things going on at once. Uh, even besides just the music that was happening on on the stage. And, of course, there were also some large gaps between acts and this and that. But, I mean, uh, one just wonders what it was like to be in the midst of all that. Well, that's right, because we, t- we, we talked to various people and also, the, as I say, the archive at the museum at Bethel Woods had already have on tape an interview with interviews with lots of people who, who were in the, in the crowd there. And they all said that there was so much going on when, regardless of the music, there were kids' playgrounds, there was a sort of a, there, were, there was, you know, like a bazaar, there were, there were people selling stuff, people with political propaganda, people selling home craft stuff, people selling organic food while it lasted. Uh, and, and so there were all, all, all these other things going on there, people bathing in the pond famously, there were, um, and people just trying to get on with, cooking and feeding the crowd, you know, the hippie communes were, were out in force feeding people and trying to keep life as we know it going. There was a medical center, which again, was manned by volunteers eventually. So all these things were going on simultaneous to the, to, to, to the, to the events on the stage. Amazing. Uh, as you look back on it now, uh, you must feel a, a sort of euphoric exhaustion <laughs> at having tried to to put into the pages of one single book just how powerful an experience and a world-changing experience Woodstock was. Well, that's right. And as I said, I, I hadn't I hadn't watched the movie for some years, and obviously I've I, I watched it throughout doing this book. I, I watched it time and time again, and very carefully, you know, sort of winding back bits and forward, and you know repeating pieces and sort of got to know the movie back to front. And then again, uh, I mean, we, we finished the book some months ago, and uh, well, the beginning of the year, basically. And um, and so it, it all kind of gone into the past slightly. And then, the, 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 of course, now the book's out. I'm talking about it again. And the other night we had a launch, a little launch thing in a, in a, in a club here in, in Chelsea in London. And, 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 and while I was signing copies of the book, they, they were showing the movie on, on the screen at the back, it was in the, in a garden in the open air, hmm. about nine o'clock at night, and it was quite a magic thing happened that the people who were kind of actually attending this little signing were, were were you know looking at the movie and talking to me about the book and so on, and then suddenly on on the movie that wasn't playing terribly loud, the the Joe Cocker segment came on, and all the other people who were in this club indoors at the bar and whatever, gradually filtered out because they could hear this Joe Cocker thing. That, little help from her friends. And suddenly the crowd around the book signing, which was about 20 strong, was suddenly about 50 strong because all these people came out onto this, on, onto this um, garden, this club, just, just a, a, drawn by this Joe Cocker music. It was amazing. Hmm. Quite magical, yeah. <laughs> Reminding you of the magic of that moment. One last yes. question. It's so interesting, of course, to look back on something over the span of 40 years. And, of course, some of the people that you would love to have talked to... Uh, are gone, some of them due to uh, the, the, the reckless lifestyle which they were engaging in at the time, and others, uh, for, for other reasons, uh, are not available to you. For those that you were able to talk to who looked back at Woodstock, uh, how realistically did they tend to look at it versus through the kind of the rose-colored haze of, of sort of magical mists of, of, of this kind of now almost mythical kind of event? I mean... Mm. Uh, I get the sense that 
what we're getting from your book is is actually a, a very very realistic look at what happened at, at at Woodstock. Was that a hard thing to draw from people? No, I think I, I think you, 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 you're quite right. Um, talking to people like Joe Cocker and guys from um, uh, Ten Years After and Melanie and so on. They, Melanie, if you like, had a bit of a. I think she had a bit of a rose-tinted view of her part in it. But 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 people like Joe Joe Cocker, who was a, who was a hard-bitten rock and roller, you know, and he he was very kind of objective about it. And he said, well, it was it was great when you look back on it, but it was bloody terrifying at the time <laughs> to use his words, you know. And 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 I think a lot of them are quite realistic about it because they've had. You you could say that they've had. 40 years to get romantic about it but on the other hand they've had 40 years to kind of keep it at one some distance and say well you know it was our set wasn't that great or etc cetera, etc cetera. you know they, I, I think it, it, with that passing of time you can also be more objective in a way you know hmm. the book has a, a rich chapter as well called aftermath which looks at how woodstock was viewed by the world and uh catches us up with all of the participants where they are now uh, bibliography at the end as well, and uh, and again, page after page of remarkable images and information about this incredible event called Woodstock. The book, Woodstock, Three Days That Rock the World, is published by Sterling, created in association with the museum at Bethel Woods, uh, where you can also uh, re-experience Woodstock in, in a different way. And uh, the editors of this book, Michael Kingsbury, and my morning show guest today, Mike Evans. Mike Evans, I thank you so much for your role in this marvelous book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. That's a pleasure, Greg.